Welcome back to another edition of Big City Catholics, our diocesan podcast with Bishop Robert Brennan, the Bishop of Brooklyn, and myself, Father Chris Henu. Today, we are joined with a very special guest, Monsignor James Shea. Monsignor is the president of the University of Mary, but he is probably more popularly known as the author of this great essay, great little book that Bishop Brennan loves so very much, has gifted to all of our priests here in the diocese, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. Monsignor, we're really happy that you're here with us, but before we begin, let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Calling forth the Holy Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created. And, and you, you shall, shall renew, renew the face of the earth. earth. In the name of the Father, amen. and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. So this is a, quite an interesting podcast we're, we're recording. We're not exactly in the big city, are we? No, no. We're this far is... from it, out in the uh, country of Huntington, in Lloyd Harbor, at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception, where many of us, at least some of us older guys, study, because this is a seminary that was built by Archbishop Malloy, then Bishop of Brooklyn, and all of this was one territory, and it's been shared by the priests of the diocese until the seminaries merged about 10 years ago, and Dunwoody became the main campus for preparing priests. But I studied here. Coming, Being here this week brings back a lot of very good memories. I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I came to this uh, seminary when I was in high school, okay. and it was actually this seminary that was a major part of my vocation story. It was Eucharistic Adoration in the Crypt Chapel, and I said to myself, whatever I have to do to live in this beautiful seminary, that's what I'll do. <laughs> that was the start of it. As God's humor would have it, I never lived in this seminary. That's right. So yeah, everywhere but. But we're here as a, a group of priests from the diocese for our priestly convocation. Bishop, how's that been for well, you? The first part of the convocation involved the priests coming Monday, Tuesday, and then all of us were here together on Wednesday, and then uh, some will be staying now for Thursday, Friday. So it's been great. The priests are so glad to be together. We have not been able to do that in a meaningful way, really, except for the chrism mass and my own installation. So this has been a very important time for us, and I thank all the people I've, I've asked your prayers, and you've been generous with those prayers because I can see the fruits of those prayers, and we're very, very grateful. Now, as the keynote, of course, on Wednesday when we gathered with the priest, um, Monsignor James Shea joined us and gave the keynote talk. As you say, from Christendom to apostolic mission, wow, we're living in that age of apostolic mission. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Monsignor I just Shea. want to say that this, for me, I'm a North Dakota priest, this is really the big city. <laughs> I, I, I'm scared out of my wits by all these people <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> There are dozens of them. Yeah, right, dozens and dozens. <laughs> Tell us, you, you're president of the uh, University of Mary in North Dakota, in That's Bismarck, right. North yeah. Dakota. It's really, for a lot of us here, I know for many families, it's been long on the map. You've sustained about 10 years of constant growth. But for a, a lot of us, it was your essay, your book that kind of made us take notice of University of Mary. Yeah, and you were the youngest at the time of your installation, the youngest college yeah. president in the United States. I was inaugurated at 34, and for 10 years, I was the youngest college president in America. I think that I was usurped by a sister, a Nashville Dominican, 
you know, Cardinal Dolan calls them the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> <laughs> a Nashville Dominican who is the president of Aquinas College now, which is their small college that they have down in Nashville. But she's from Hebron, North Dakota. University of Mary launches a number of very competent people in a number of yeah. fields. Tell me about your top program and other programs. Yeah, so we're, we're a university of about 4,000 students in five schools. So we have a School of Arts and Sciences, which has the fastest growing Catholic studies program in America. We have a School of Education Behavior behavioral sciences, which was one of our first initiatives. You know, University of Mary was founded as Mary College in 1959 for the education of teachers and nurses. And that's another one of our schools, the St. John School of Health Sciences, which is our largest school. And that has the number one nursing program in America. And we have doctoral degrees in nursing, physical therapy, occupational therapy. And we have degrees in exercise science, athletic training, radiologic technology, respiratory care, pre-med, all of those things. And then we've got a school of business, of course. And then our newest school is the Ham School of Engineering. And we offer three different fields in engineering and then construction management out of that. And so it's quite a project. We're the most affordable, serious Catholic university in America. We have an amazing program where if you graduate from a Catholic high school, the minimum institutional aid commitment the university makes to you is free room and board. So free room and board for graduates of Catholic high schools. We have a campus in Rome. We have a campus at Arizona State University, which is the largest public university in America. They have 90,000 students. And we're right in the middle. We occupy an old church. It used to be the Newman Center, and then they built a great big Newman Center around it, but it's a 110-year-old church. It's the oldest church in in the Valley of the Sun. It's been deconsecrated, and now it's a kind of study library based on Oxford Commons. And that's a domestic exchange, and I think we've got probably eight other satellite campuses doing various things around the country. And so it's a, a major operation. And we're faithfully Christian and joyfully Catholic. We're really proud of our identity, and, and there's a lot happening there. And I, that, I think, is key, and that, that clear identification. And I love the two words you use, faithfully yeah. uh, Christian and joyfully Catholic. That's because right. Those two a- adjectives are really key to it all. And my contention is, you know, part of being Catholic means being excellent. Yeah, so it's not right. like you're running a strong Catholic university or a, a strong academic university. You're oh, st- running a strong, joyful Catholic. That's I, right. A, excellent. You know, a lot of people make that false dichotomy, it's and true. It's, yeah, I'm annoyed by it. Same. It's 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 very untrue. It was it was one of the premises behind the Land O'Lakes sort of initiative in the late 1960s that Catholic universities needed to come into their own, and that we were being held back by you know, the intransigence of sort of dogmatism and hierarchical governance and all these different kinds of things. And that in order for us to come into our, um, and come into our own as, as academic institutions of excellence like Yale and Harvard and Stanford and other places, that we would need to abandon our religious identity. That's chronicled, interestingly, by James Birchall in his five billion, it's only 800 page uh, book, The Dying of the Light. Yeah. The light is not dying at the University of Mary. It's, no, uh, it's, that's great. It's kindled and it's, it's burning strong. And it's an important institution in an important age. And yeah. this is what introduced me to you. I told you earlier that a priest from Columbus uh, introduced me to your essay and then gave it to me in book form. As you said, you really, it was never really marketed. And I, if, if I recall, my first copy of it didn't even have your name. I think it was well, just no. a publication of the University of Mary. Well, and, and that's how we publish it completely. Right. It's just the University of Mary. Now, I did I did the introductory 
Right. I have my name on the on the sort of preface on it. Right, exactly. But, but, you know, I've been shy about the whole thing in that it really is a work that arose from a conversation among friends. And there's a group of friends, priests and scholars and and others who I've met through the years who sort of convened around some of these early ideas and were talking about them over the course of many years. And there's nothing, I mean, it's it's so funny to me because it's, Less than 100 pages long. Uh, there's nothing really revolutionary in it. It's a recapitulation of the papal magisteria of the past 50 years or so. It's all there in seminal form in the speech that Pope St. John Paul II gave in Port-au-Prince in Haiti when he used the phrase new evangelization for the right. first time. He said it would be new in ardor, method, and expression. And we think it's new also in circumstance. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think I first spoke about it to the Finance Council of the Diocese of Phoenix. Bishop Olmsted had had me down, and, and I talked to them, and then he had me back to talk to the priests about it. But it was in very rough form then, and then, you know, we kind of whipped it into shape. It was kind of ready to be published, and I have a bad conscience about this. And so I'm here with a bishop and a priest, and so I don't know if this is a reserve sin or <laughs> how, that, how that works. You know, there are certain sins where you have to get special permission for absolution, but it sat on my desk gathering dust for two, three years. Really? I just didn't have time. You know, the the, re- the requirements of my responsibilities right. are pretty great, and I just needed to get around to it, needed to get around to it. Then the pandemic happened, and we had a little bit of extra time, and we published it through University of Mary Press, which is just a, a small imprint. It's a, a humble thing, and and we put it up on Amazon, but really, I think the first run might have been five, six hundred copies. We published it as an internal piece. I wanted the people who work at the University of Mary to have a better sense of why we were so crazy. You know what I mean? Because they're right. like, here we go again. You know, they, you know what? What's going on? You know, they, we, why can't we just be like other places and, you know, uh, sort of be lazy and drift along, get around, get along with everybody and charge too much to our students? And why can't we be like the other places? They weren't really asking that. But that's what we published it for. Right. And what was funny, published it in May of 2020. So in the midst of the pandemic, over the summer, we were surprised to see like an uptick in sales on uh, Amazon. And I was so surprised because we don't exist to make Jeff Bezos any richer. You know, I, that's not a priority for me. And so by, but by September, we were selling 150 copies every single day out of our bookstore. Every day, 150 copies. Oh. And so we were sending out like spiral bound copies with notes of that's apology right. saying, I'm so sorry we ran out <laughs> and uh, we'll get, we'll send you a real copy, but here's one to tide you over. And we were just very, very surprised and embarrassed that we didn't realize that this would touch a nerve, but dioceses are calling and ordering thousands of copies. And then one bishop had a study group in every parish in his whole diocese. They did like a, a study guide for it. Can you imagine a study? Now, this is how far our culture has collapsed. We're doing study guides for 95-page <laughs> essays. You know what I mean? It already is for dummies. But you know, where's the Sparknotes version? Right. Is there a Sparknotes version? But you see, the, actually, the, this gets to the point. You began a national conversation. Uh, that's what I think I'm so grateful for. You hmm. began a national conversation. And one of the things that's so impressive among the people I've shared it with, no matter where people stand on the proverbial political yeah. spectrum, yeah. They all identify with what you say in the book. 
They all identify. They they realize that we need to take a. We live in a new reality, yeah. and we need to take a new way of looking at things. And we, the temptation is always to fall back to to the old. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things that I'm pretty weary of. One of them is uh, sort of Catholic celebrity. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we were we were keen to just put University of Mary on the front right. and let that be. Because everybody now is like, how can I get famous and all that? Well, that's dangerous. You know what I that mean? Is. It's it's a mm. it's it's noble if if it's for, if it's zeal for the gospel. It's not good if it's ego. You know what I mean? So I'm uh, you know Im- impatient with that. I'm also very impatient, uh, and I said this a little bit to the priests toward the end in the question answer session. I'm really impatient with the way that the left-right kind of divide, which is which arose out of the French Revolution and modern politics and all these things, and which we've adopted the sort of political spectrum of our of our nation, the way that that's tearing up the church as well. And I worry about it not just because I'm sort of repelled by it intellectually. I worry about it from a practical standpoint because it's made my students very worried about their future. You know, I think that that when when I look around, I said this to a group of parents two years ago when they were dropping off their freshmen. I said, we're driving our kids crazy with fear. I said, remember when we were young, you know, those of us who came of age and who were in our 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, there was turmoil and discord in the world in which we grew up. But by and large, our parents pulled up their pants. You know what I mean? And they said, okay, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Your future's secure. We're taking care of you. And we're going to have this talk over here. And maybe our voices will raise this high, but whatever. But the vitriol, which I suppose is made possible, along with all the possibilities and promise of social media and, and sort of virtual platforms, it really has allowed people to be trolls, unaccountable in their sort of criticism. And so I just don't like that because mm. I I feel like it's my responsibility. This is why we say joyfully Catholic. It's my responsibility to have a campus of 4,000 students who feel like they're in a place where they can learn and dream, dream God's dreams for them, which they can't do if And carrying still. the best news ever. That's right. It's the, the best, best. The best news you could ever it's, deliver. It's the be- well, and this is, this is the other thing. If, if I can say something about it, the essay, so this is spoiler alert. Do I have to give a spoiler alert? How does <laughs> well, that work? Yeah. You know, it, so on page we'll like make five, of it. <laughs> almost at the end of the book, <laughs> you know, in the, in, the last, in the last section, we talk about uh, the key task of an apostolic age as the conversion of the mind to a new way of seeing. And then we try and give a little attempt to tell the gospel story in an epic form format. Because one of the difficulties with the sort of modern progressive mindset, which is the mindset that's opposed to the Christian imaginative vision, is that it, it makes all these promises, it doesn't keep them, and then it devolves into such a boring, dull mind-numbing. I mean, life life under that regime becomes one damn thing after another. You can beep that out, right? I don't know how sensitive people <laughs> are here in New, York, in New York. And so people go in search of this. Look at the popularity of Marvel Comics and uh, Game of Thrones and uh, the Harry Potter series and Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. People are really looking for this. Well, the high saga that really came true 
was the gospel yes. of Jesus Christ, which eclipses. I mean, it has the best heroes, the best uh, sort of uh, villains, uh, the the highest stakes, the most spectacular uh, reach, the most surprising twists of plot. I mean, it's very, very, very exciting. One of the kind of outgrowths of it, we did this. We have this small website called Prime Matters, and it's a uh, it's very lightly branded. Again, we're not out for notoriety, but we have lots of eavesdroppers. I think there are probably 11,000 people or something who get the first draft, which is like a draft we spell like a draft of beer, you know. And we have a, a section on there. We have, by the way, videos. I don't know if you've seen them, Bishop. Videos based on the book. And so we do, we unpack the Christian mythic narrative. We unpack Christum to Apostolic Mission. They're little primer videos to sort of wet the whistle. I have not yet seen them. Oh, you've seen other see videos of you, but, but like interviews. I've not seen them. No, I'm no, more, these, are, these, are, like, these are like cartoons, you know, okay. not cartoons. What are they, what are they called? Shorts? They're like, they're like shorts, yeah. They're animations. You got to help us out, Father Chris. You're, you're, <laughs> I'm still in the age you're of young and all this. But, but we've got that. And then we did another section called the Chris, Christian Mythic Narrative, where okay. we tell, unfortunately, it's my voice, but we tell the whole thing from before creation to the contemporary moment in seven minute segments. And so it's like in podcast kind of form, That's you know, great. and it's really, really bracing hmm. because it's true. And that's the wonderful thing about it. And so we want our young people to know that that's, that that's where the high stakes are, because otherwise you start to believe in politics and that'll let you down Gosh. every time. That's so true. You mentioned, you know, in your talk today about the nostalgia Mm. of, um, you know, and so that's it. That it's interesting because you you just basically you left it at that. There's the the time for nostalgia is is past. But you don't mention which sense of nostalgia might someone be thinking, because if you're talking to, you know, a variety of ages, range of ages, some may say, oh, I have this nostalgia for the 70s and the 80s. Others who are maybe newly ordained have a nostalgia for the 50s and 60s that they never lived or experienced. Can you just expand on that? Yeah, well, let me start by correcting the record. I I didn't say uh, the time for nostalgia is past. And if I did, what I meant is the time for nostalgia is never. In other words, it, it, it really doesn't matter what you have, what time you have a nostalgia for. It's an escape from the present. Pope St. Paul VI was once asked, Holy Father, tell us the most the most important day of your life. What's the day that made you who you are? And he thought for a moment, and you know, Giovanni Battista Montini, right? He lived an extraordinary life and a painful life. You know, think of the weight of inheriting the Second Vatican Council, working through the documents, closing it, Humanae Vitae, uh, the 1970s, all these things. And, you know, he could have said the, the day that he was elected universal shepherd, uh, was the most important day, or the day he was ordained a priest, or the day he was born, or any of those things. And finally he said, today, it's all I have. And I think that that's the way that God calls us to live. If you look at the life of Jesus, he isn't aiming for achievement so much as perseverance, you know. And he revolutionizes the circumstances by his almost startling presence to the circumstances. It's really an amazing thing. And so I think, in, then I quoted the Lord of the Rings, this thing uh, where Frodo and Gandalf are talking and Frodo says, I wish this had never happened. I wish it didn't happen in my time. And Gandalf says, so do I, so, so do all who live in such times, but that's not for them to decide. 
All that is for us to decide is what to do with the times we've been given. And so I just, I really dislike nostalgia partly, again, gosh, this is a very confessional moment uh, because I'm prone to it. You know what I mean? I, I like history and I like story and and I'm prone to, to idealize other times like my future or the past of the human, or these types of things. But all of that's just garbage. Uh, Jesus wants us to live now. God is present here. And so let's do it. And Carpe he, diem, right? right. Something and God about has fish. placed us here together. You <laughs> yeah. say that very clearly. God, right. and somehow in his providence, God placed all of us in this time here to do this right. work. It's, so does he know what he's doing or not? Or, we I have mean, to hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, I do. I, I, I think we I think, I think we should hope that. I, yeah. and, and in fact, I do. I yeah. think none of us yeah. would be living the vocation we're living if we didn't hope mm-hmm. that, if we didn't really believe it yep. and trust it with all of our being. Your title really says it all. And I think that's worth, because some people who are listening may not have been familiar with the book. So the title really <laughs> says it all, going from Christendom <laughs> to apostolic mission. And I think you're laughing at No, me. I'm laughing because the title is From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic <laughs> Age. Nobody would ever title a book like that if they wanted to sell copies of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, a t- it's just awful. But it says it all. What's, yes. the, what's the acronym for that? <laughs> but, and, and you know what I often use? I say that the Diocese of Brooklyn, here in Brooklyn and Queens, uh-huh. really epitomizes both. You know, uh, people in Brooklyn who grew up even before yeah, me would ident- yeah. say, you know, everything in Brooklyn was everybody identified by their parish. They didn't yeah. identify by neighborhood. Where did you live? Well, I lived in St. Brendan's or I live at St. James. Yeah. And now we live in this age where there's such, and it's exciting, there's such a diversity of people and growth yeah. of people and people coming home. But preaching the gospel today means using a different vocabulary than most people yeah. really mean. So in a nutshell, you, your premise is that there was a time, Christendom reflects a time when the, basically the vocabulary, the structures all yeah. support that Christian vision, That's correct? Right. The um, reality, it, apostolic times goes back to the time of the apostles. That's right. And that they were preaching and telling a new story in a new era, sometimes with little resource and great difficulty, but speaking this uh, with the power, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, the, the exciting power of the Holy Spirit. And, and then one of the issues today for us is that we're living in a time that calls for apostolic mission, yeah. and yet we're using a lot of the structures of Christendom. That's right. Yeah, so for the first 300 years or so, every Christian was a missionary. Because the Greco-Roman culture had a very powerful imaginative vision of its own, and it was opposed to Christianity. After the Edict of Milan of Constantine and other dynamics, Christianity came to challenge and then overcome that vision, incorporating aspects of it into its own. But since that time, society in the West has been a series of Christendom cultures. And now we find ourselves in a new apostolic age where we're all missionaries again. And the great catastrophic error that we can make is to operate in a Christendom mode when we're actually in a new apostolic age. That's the catastrophic error. And we can see what happens when when you try it. Think about places like Belgium, Spain, Ireland, Quebec generation, two generations ago, they, they were the most Catholic places in the world. Some of them were the most Catholic places the world had ever seen. In Quebec, they had a seminary with 800 beds, and it was full. Not like in my dad's lifetime. I read a statistic once that one in 10 women in Quebec was a religious sister in like the 1950s. And now it all fell apart. Belgium was the first country in the world 
to legalize euthanasia. Ireland had uh, protection for the unborn child in its constitution. All of that was just voted out by popular sort of revulsion just a couple of years ago. And so the church was doing business as usual, and the whole darn thing fell out. And that's really catastrophic, and it can happen. But it doesn't have to happen, no. because we can, we can shift. We can allocate resources differently. We can be more strategic and thoughtful about how we go about things. And I think God is calling us to do that. And there's something very exciting, yes. rather than ruining the day, there's yeah. something very exciting oh, about living great. today yes. and being charged with this kind of apostolic mission. But it does take some creative thinking. It takes a whole lot more courage. You know, the besetting sin of a Christendom time is hypocrisy, right. pretending to care more about God and truth than you really do. The besetting sin of an apostolic age is cowardice, pretending to care less about God and truth than you really do. And so we're called not to be cowards, but to be joyful and to make sure that it, when we preach the gospel and witness to it, that it's that it's conquering spirit is intact, because otherwise we just become these sour-faced saints that St. Teresa of Avila warned us about. God, deliver us from sour-faced saints. I tell our students all the time, cheer up. Holy cow. You know what I mean? You're young and and on the doorstep of your lives, and you're here at the University of Mary saving a lot of money. Uh, we have 24-7 dining, and so you can get the fr- freshman 50 instead of the freshman 15. They've got a lot to be happy about. And all, all of us do, not just material things, not just material or, or visible consolations, but we live in a very exciting time. It's, it's so good because in an apostolic age, the highest-hearted people show up. And Christianity was made for a fallen race. You know what I mean? And, and right. so th- this, is, this is an opportunity for us. You know, do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was wandering around like zombies saying the word unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. I, 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 was, I was like, what are you talking about? Unprecedented. Is it unprecedented for people to be in danger, inconvenienced, subject to sickness and death? And That's not true. You know what I mean? It's not true that it was unprecedented. It was unprecedented in very particular narrow ways. <laughs> but in general, our struggle with the question of death is the central question of human existence. And praise God that he sent his son to deal with. He went for the jugular. He dealt with our real enemy, death, not piddling around with other things, you know. You know, you, you speak about you know, what that means for the church. You speak about what it means in terms of the formation and preparation of priests. Yeah. But you also raise, what does it mean for families? Well, so here we go. Anybody who's been a priest for 10 minutes has had someone come up to him and say something to the effect of, Father, I, I, I wander the earth with unbearable shame. I, I don't know what we did wrong. Our parents, when, when they were raising us, they took us to church, taught us how to pray, got us the sacraments, sent us to Catholic schools, and we kept the faith. We did the same with our children. They've all left. Our grandchildren aren't even baptized. What did, what did we do wrong? How did we screw this up so royally? You know, people are really... And what they don't realize is that the ground shifted right underneath their feet. It's much, much harder to raise families in an apostolic age than in a Christendom time. I'll give you an example. I grew up... Now, this is going to shock everybody. Hold on. Buckle your seatbelt, <laughs> Father Chris. Uh, dozens and dozens. I, I grew up in a town with dozens and dozens of people, 200 people in my hometown. And I didn't even grow up in the town. I was in a farm two miles north of it. And my parents raised eight children on that farm. And 
everybody in town was helping to raise all the other kids in the whole town. So my parents, all the other parents, my teachers, my coaches, the Catholic priest and the Lutheran minister were all on the same team. And they were like, okay, we got all these kids and we got 18 years and they've all got a a whole lot of original sin and we're going to raise them to be good Christians, to give back and to be virtuous and all that. My younger brother, uh, number four of the eight, is raising his six, soon to be seven, uh, children on the same farm. It's nothing like that for him and his wife. Everything is shifted in rural North Dakota. We're not talking, you know, Wall Street. We're talking rural North Dakota. Everything shifted, and he and his wife have to be much more intentional, much more strategic, much more thoughtful, because they can't rely on support from the ambient culture to help them to raise their children to love God. And so these are the challenges that face us in our time. But, you know, it's always been a responsibility of parents to ensure to the best of their ability that that their children keep the faith. But there you have it. So we talk about the family as the domestic church. That can happen in families. And you can't blame parents who thought, okay, I'll just do what my parents did, business as usual, but that's not the way to do it now. And if if we as priests and bishops go about the same thing, we're making the same mistake, and then we'll have this, we'll wander around with the same shame. What did we do wrong? I did the same thing that the last bishop did, but things are changing. It's a it's a powerful challenge, and again, a great great conversation. Yeah. The other thing is, it's not without hope. Oh, uh, and that's one of the things I think you deliver so well. Spoiler alert, I pointed it out in to groups, but I love that chart you have of the first oh. <laughs> evangelization meeting on the Everybody day of Pentecost. Yeah, I yeah. love it. All the resources. <laughs> and you look at what, what were the resources that the uh, yeah. 11 apostles had. Yeah. And, 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 but they had the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you and That's I have right. today. But the other thing is, you got to this with the priest a little bit. You spoke mm-hmm. in a broader way, but maybe stepping away from the book. But I was caught by your analysis of 19th century France. And you, yeah. you think, we work with statistics, we work with reports and projections. Yeah. But we really do need to leave room for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because God other, to surprise yeah. us. Otherwise, sociological analysis or whatever it is will be erroneous because it doesn't take those types of things into account. And so, you know, I think so. We're in the midst of this Eucharistic revival right now. Fine, and I'm a big proponent of it. I think it's one of the most important things that's happened, and it comes out of this Pew Center study about the belief of Catholics regarding the real presence. Well, okay, so uh, what are we going to do about it? We are going to do something about it, but we ourselves can't. The Holy Spirit really needs to be the protagonist in this kind of revival. And in France, you saw that. You know, anybody looking with a reasonable scientific vantage at France at that time in sort of the ravages after the revolution would have said, gosh, the church is done. But that's not what happened. Instead, there was a terrific flowering in religious life and priesthood and all of these different types of things. And that can happen again here. I don't have a good way to predict it, but God is full of surprises. He's just the best. Absolutely. What do they say? Deo optimo maximo, right? Yeah, that's right. It was, the Romans thought it was Jupiter, but we know who it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Monsignor, this is just a fascinating conversation and we could go on for a long time, but we try to keep a podcast to a certain time. We'll just ask the Lord to bless your work, to bless our work and to renew within us that, that fire of evangelization. Yeah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, We thank you for the gifts that you provide for us and for the people who inspire us with your love. We ask you to be with us that we may be your faithful, joyful witnesses in the world. 
credible witnesses in all that we say and all that we do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty Amen. God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, for being with us and with our priest today, and thank you for your extra time with this podcast. Yes, uh, this concludes another edition of Big City Catholics, our Dawson podcast. Monsignor Shea, thank you so much for your time with us today and for joining us on this podcast and for sharing your insights. We're really very, very grateful that you were able to join us. And to our listeners, we hope that you share this podcast. We hope that you like it and share it with others. And we'll see you again next week. God bless. Thank you.